Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The FT. If you're one of the tens of thousands of investors who hold funds managed by Neil Woodford, what should you do as he announces his departure from Invesco Perpetual? Ministers say no one should have to sell their house to fund social care, but can we really believe them? And the lessons to be learned from the Earl of Cardigan's unsavoury spat with his own trustees. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Joe Cumbay. Hello. Lucy Warwick-Ching. Hello. And our special studio guest, Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services. Hello. We start with the shock news that Neil Woodford is to leave Invesco Perpetual next April to set up his own fund management venture. Neil is without doubt the top dog among UK fund managers. The funds he manages have over £33 billion in them. That's over a third of the entire equity income sector. His flagship fund, the Invesco Perpetual High Income, has turned £1,000 into more than £22,000 since he took the helm in 1988. Invesco has said that his responsibilities will be divided up among the existing team. Mark Barnett, who manages the UK Strategic Income Fund, will take over the high income and income funds next April. However, that has not been sufficient to ease worries among some about the departure of such a high-profile manager. Many advisers have taken the funds off their select lists or reviewed their recommendations. The share price of the Edinburgh Investment Trust, another product in the Woodford stable, has dropped around 10% since the news was announced, and even shares in Invesco, which trade in the US, have dropped in response. I'm joined now by Darius McDermott, who researches funds and is Managing Director of Chelsea Financial Services. Darius, generally speaking, when top fund managers leave, investors' money has a tendency to follow them. Is that what you expect to happen in this case, even though Neil isn't actually leaving until next April and we still don't really know what he's going to do next? I mean, Neil Woodford is, as you say, the top dog in the UK fund management arena and has made a lot of money for investors. He's also extremely well known and very popular. So I I would think there will be a, a large flow of money from um, existing Invesco products to his new enterprise as and when it comes. Okay, but you don't necessarily envisage that starting today or tomorrow or, or I, I money think going to other funds in advance of him leaving? Most 
people have taken a sort of wait and see. Um, Mark Barnett is an extremely experienced fund manager and has worked with Neil for 17 years. Um, so I think there's no initial need for people to panic. There are a number of other good equity income funds that people um, have been inquiring about, but there's not been as many phone calls as one might have anticipated in the last couple of days. Okay. Now, Invesco is pledging continuity with the new managers. You mentioned there that um, Mark Barnett is himself a very, um, very experienced manager. If you look at the top 10 holdings of the two funds, they're very, very similar. But a big part of Neil's um, style was these big macro bets, these big sort of choices. I'm not going to be in tech stocks in 1999 or I'm staying out of banks in 2007. Is a new manager going to be able to replicate those really bold, high conviction calls? I mean, it's going to be extremely difficult. Um, I suppose you you might suggest that he's had as good a training as any because he sat next to Neil Woodford and worked alongside him for such a long period of time. And whilst they do have a lot of overlap in stocks, the actual portfolio construction is slightly different. For instance, Neil owns 9% of Astra and Mark owns 35 So it's quite different um, slants, but they do have a big stock overlap. On the macro side, you know, I, th- I think it's it's incredibly difficult to judge today whether Mark is going to be able to replicate that. What we do know is that Mark has is a good fund manager in his own right, but he has sat alongside Neil Woodford, and, and some of that, those macro calls clearly have, um, you know, worked their way into his funds as well. So uh, it's 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 going to be tough, but I think if anybody's got a chance, somebody who's at least worked with Neil for such a long period of time has has, has got a, a good a chance as any. You mentioned um, there that there are some other um, some, some other useful alternatives if you're looking for a sort of a defensive uh, fund or a, a UK equity income fund. What are what are those if you if you weren't prepared to stick around until April next year and you wanted to move your money out now? Yeah, the sort of the obvious go-to fund I think in this particular circumstance is, is the Artemis Income Fund. Um, it's the second biggest fund outside of Neil's products and run by the extremely experienced Adrian Frost and and Adrian Gosden. Um, they do have a similar style, and um, you know that fund has performed very well over time. Uh, we also like Threadneedle UK Equity Alpha Income. It's a slightly more concentrated version, again with an experienced fund manager in Lee Harrison, and th- that those are sort of our two favoured sort of large cap funds. There are plenty of other good income funds that do different things. Um, there are a raft of products done very well in the last five years that invest in smaller company income stocks. And um, funds that have exposure to that type of theme, things like Rathbone Income is a multi-cap income fund. And Standard Life Equity Unconstrained Income Fund is also a multi-cap income fund that people might want to consider for some diversification. Okay. And finally, do you have any insight into why Neil Woodford left Invesco or indeed um, what he's planning to do next? He himself, of course, is remaining very tight-lipped until next April about that. I mean, I think I think it's probably the million-dollar question as to why. Um, he has been there a very long time, has been very successful. I, I think the attraction of potentially running his own business as well as running a fund um, appears to be um, something that, that may have come into consideration. I also think he probably would be looking forward to running a slightly smaller pot of money again as well so I'm sure he will get substantial support um, 33 billion has taken him 25 years to build up and it, it, it's, it's such a huge sum of money um, so I think we'll see a broad equity f- fund from Neil and it's always going to have an income tilt because um, he does like companies that generate cash and can grow their dividends over time so I think we'll get a broad income fund whether, whether or not it actually goes into the income sector 
I think it's a question um, which we, we wait for the answer, but a, a, definitely a broad UK fund is, is what we would expect. Thank you very much, Darius. That was Darius McDermott of Chelsea Financial Services. There's plenty more on life after Woodford in this weekend's FT Money, which you can also read on Kindle, tablets and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, why a row over assets held in trust shows how important trustees can be. But first, let's take a look at the vexed issue of social care. I say vexed because the government is tying itself up in knots by trying to make promises that it knows deep down it can ill afford to keep. The promise in this case is that no one should have to sell their home to fund long-term care. In late 2012, as part of a big review of funding social care, ministers said that all local authorities must offer a deferred payment scheme. That's where the council effectively pays for some of your very expensive social care and then recoups that money from the sale of your house after you've died. At present, provision of this facility varies widely from one authority to another. However, buried in a consultation paper this week is a proposal that access to the deferred payment scheme should be subject to a means test. The Labour peer, Lord Lipsy, has said this renders it virtually useless because it means applicants will have to exhaust practically every other resource available to them before they can access the scheme. It also makes the whole system still more confusing. Research conducted by FT Money and Saga earlier this year showed that there was already widespread confusion over who pays for what when a person requires long-term social care. I'm joined now by Joe Cumbo, who commissioned that research and has been looking at this week's events. Joe, how would the proposed means test on deferred payment work? Um, I don't agree that it's going to pull the rug out of the from this whole scheme, but it certainly is going to make it more complex. What will happen from 2015 um, under what was described as... Um, two years ago, is that when you need to go uh, into care, into residential care, instead of having to scrap around or thinking about having to sell the family home, which can be quite an emotional decision, you could go to the local authority who would offer you access to this scheme. Now, currently, as you mentioned, um, it's quite patchy. Not all local authorities will offer that. Uh, but under this new requirement from 2015, all local authorities will be required to offer this scheme. But what we've seen and we've discovered this week, and it's emerged, is that it's going to be restricted to individuals who have got less than £23,000 in assets. So what this will mean, instead of going there as soon as you need to go into to a home, you've got to think about how you know, your savings and assets, the level of them. So it could take you longer before you can access that scheme. Right, and you'll have to exhaust, all, you'll have to spend all your ISA money and all your... Yes, that's right. OK. Now, when it comes to paying for social care uh, and the state stepping in to pay for it, aren't there already multiple caps and tests and thresholds on the amounts that the government will pay? This is making the scheme even more complex. I mean, the whole purpose of the reforms, uh, the government said, was to make it more simple for us to plan for our care costs and to give us peace of mind that we won't need to to sell our homes to, to fund those care costs. But it certainly is very difficult to see how adding more restrictions into the scheme is going to to meet those two uh, principles that they want to achieve. As you mentioned, that there are caps and mean testing, uh, means testing that already exists within the system. And from 2016, under the reforms, we will see the introduction of a new cap of £72,000 on 
what individuals are expected to pay towards their costs in their lifetime. But there will be also a new means-tested threshold of £118,000, which, uh, above which you won't get any help, below which you can get some help from, this, uh, from the local authority to pay for your care costs. So you can just see from the mentioning of those two figures there that the system is still quite complex. Mm-hmm. And that's only um, from 2016, of course. Can you remind us how the system works, if that's the right word, um, now or from now until then? Very few people will get access to any help from their local authority to pay those care, care costs because currently the, the limit in England, the means tested limit, is about £23,000 and that includes the family home. If you've got a home, your total assets are more than that. You'll have to self-fund and pay your way and that's where you get into the situation of people looking to fire sell the family home to pay for those care costs from 2016 that threshold is going to rise to 118,000 pounds so if individuals have got assets including the family home that's almost four times the current means tested level they will have to pay their own way but below that they can start to get some state help but the second peg of the reforms is is that you're going to have to pay 72,000 pounds at a minimum before before the state before the state in. will step in okay now you mentioned there that for many people um, selling a house a family home is a very emotive um, issue uh, it's clearly also a very political issue and the government seems very hung up on this idea that having to do it is is a is a scandal um, but there is another strand of opinion isn't there that sort of says well how else are we supposed to fund social care it is very expensive and why shouldn't people um, sell their houses to do so um what, what, how's, how's that debate likely to be resolved? Well, at the moment, housing is such a big issue for a lot of people and they're relying on it to pay not just their care costs but also pensions. We don't have a lot of systems in place yet to get people funded uh, for, their, for their old age. So people are still relying on property to pay for a lot of their costs in later life and I don't think they're quite ready to let, to let go of that. What the government is trying to do with this um, proposal is to release the sort of need to, to make fire sales or decisions or emotional decisions to sell a property. But you're right to mention that there is a lot of debate about whether the state can continue to, to forward to pay for uh, for the costs of um, elderly for people going into care, and and people say that perhaps we should take more responsibility uh, and think about selling our homes to pay for those care costs, and we can't expect to pass on those assets to our children, for example. That shouldn't be. It's part of a mindset in in this country, but perhaps we re- we uh, need to rethink that. But currently, there are no other ways. There are to to save uh, ahead specifically or prepare for for those costs because there aren't any insurance products. So either you save uh, with cash or your investments to to make money and it can amount to tens of thousands of pounds. So what happens is that in that vacuum, people are just relying on their property. Okay, thank you very much, Joe. This is an issue I'm sure we will hear a lot more about in future. You can read more about it this weekend too. There are more details of the social care bill in this weekend's FT Money. If you want to leave comments, many people have strong views about this very emotive subject, you can do so online or you can email us. The address again is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Since the start of this year, the Earl of Cardigan has been in the headlines rather more often than he might have liked. He's been accused variously of spitting in someone's face, cutting off an elderly man's water supply, vandalising cars and wrecking pheasant feeders. 
He says he is living in just one room on his sprawling 4,500-acre estate in Wiltshire and claiming job seekers' allowance. The cause of all this is a protracted and bitter dispute with two trustees of his estate, whom he appointed in 2005 when he went to live in America. He says they are selling off family assets without his consent and denying him access to his own money. And he is not alone. Bust-ups between settlers who establish trusts, the trustees who run them, and the beneficiaries on whose behalf the assets are shielded have been on the rise lately. More and more wills are now being contested. Lucy Warwick-Ching has been investigating. Lucy, perhaps we could start by explaining what exactly a trust is and how it works. Well, trusts have been around for a very, very long time. They were kind of first seen in the Middle Ages when knights were kind of leaving home to fight and they just wanted to make sure that their assets were protected. So in case they died, they wanted to make sure, say, their property and wealth would be passed on to their children. Essentially, what they're used for is to transfer assets. So you need to, if you want to set one up, you have to talk to a trustee and transfer the assets to the trustee and then the trustee actually has the responsibility of paying out those assets to certain beneficiaries. Aren't these vehicles just for the aristocracy, really? I mean, you talk about knights there, and the mere mention of the word estate conjures up sort of images of stately homes and acres of land. Um, Traditionally, yes. And yes, they are more commonly used by uh, very wealthy individuals. But I think as people's family situations have changed, they are becoming more common. So if, say, two people are coming together and they've got children from different marriages, then they might consider setting up trust so that it's just so that assets can be shared out fairly. The reason lots of lawyers and advisors say that their clients like trusts are because they can sort out some of the complexity with people's finances. So it means that if you are worried about what's going to happen to your finances once you die, you can get it all drawn up and hopefully be able to then pay out your estate to exactly who you want to and in the way you want it to be paid. Okay, so if you're thinking about setting up a trust uh, and you need to appoint trustees, what qualities um, should you be looking for? I should point out that, of course, you have to appoint trustees. You can't just set up a trust and run it yourself. Yes, exactly. Um, But I think traditionally some people were just asking, um, you know, relatives, family, friends, you know, what's called lay trustees to look after their assets. And now people are uh, more commonly getting kind of professional trustees. So what you need to really be looking out for is somebody, you know, it may may sound a bit obvious, but you want someone who's trustworthy, someone with experience of uh, financial affairs, someone that's not going to um, get confused or concerned if they're drawn into any kind of uh, family battles. You want somebody... Um, also, yeah, you want somebody who's actually going to outlive you. You know, it may sound obvious, but um, you don't want to entrust it to somebody that's, you know, in your peer group because you could then find that actually they they might get ill and die before you. Okay, now you mentioned uh, lay trustees there, and many people do say, well, of course, you shouldn't mix um, business and friendship. Um, one of Earl Cardigan's trustees was, of course, uh, a friend and presumably isn't one anymore. Is it actually wise to appoint personal friends, or are you better off going to, say, a lawyer or an accountant and asking them to, to be a trustee professionally, even though it will probably, I assume, cost you money to, to have their services? 
I think um, from speaking to people this week for writing this article, uh, people, uh, lawyers and advisors are kind of saying you need a bit of a mixture, really, because problems do arise when you have uh, family members looking after estates. One lawyer I spoke to this morning was saying he's dealing with a case now um, of an uncle that was entrusted some money for his niece. And he has actually now spent that money. I mean, I think he's saying that he was borrowing the money of the estate and always planned to pay it back, but the money is now gone. So even if you do sue that person, you're trying to get the money back. I mean, it's just when you introduce those extra elements of, um, you know, people, you know, who, who aren't necessarily financial advisors and don't really know exactly what they're doing. And the other thing is if you um, have a family member or a relative who's dealing with the estate then they can get caught in the middle if there's some of these but two people that they know very well are contesting how this money should be spent then they might may find themselves um you know paralyzed in the middle just not really knowing what to do with that money not wanting to upset anybody and then probably not really doing the best thing probably for the financial assets in that trust Okay, thank you very much, Lucy. There's more on that story in this weekend's FT Money and probably in the tabloids for the next three months. Don't forget, FT Money is available on Sunday as well as Saturday and all the time at ft.com forward slash money. Other highlights this week. As a new chair of the Federal Reserve is named and the US government standoff ends, we look at what the end of QE might mean for asset markets. John Redwood updates on his low-cost ETF portfolio. We've some more on how banks are getting ever choosier over who they lend to. And there's more too on the disgraceful saga of Catalyst Investment Group, which was fined last week for selling unsuitable products to retail investors. That's it for this week. But in the meantime, don't forget that you can read money articles all week on our website, ft.com forward slash money, where you'll also find blog posts, readers' comments and a whole range of useful calculators and tools. But until then, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Joe, Lucy and our special studio guest, Darius McDermott. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.